Hello. I'm not D. He said he was going to finish tonight, but I don't think he is on that topic of holiness. Um, he called, he texted me Sunday evening and asked if I could fill in tonight, so you've got me. Um, we're going to continue as I've started in the, the book of Second Timothy, and that's where we'll go whenever I speak, is we'll just go to the book of Second Timothy, and we'll continue on in that book. Um, Paul has written this very personal and pithy and passionate letter to Timothy. It was the last thing he ever wrote. It was like his last will and testament. It's, uh, it's powerful, uh, and it gets to the point, and it often, as I read this book, it, it brings me to tears because of everything that I know Timothy and Paul had in common and the things they did together and how Paul was writing as a father to this young man who was pastoring the great church at Ephesus. It wasn't an easy task. Ephesus was a hard place. And so we began looking at the first verse. We saw that as a way of a word of introduction that in verses 1 and 2, Paul mentioned three people and three words. He told us that in verse 1, this uh, little book was authored by Paul, the aged one. It was addressed to Timothy, the younger one, and it was about Christ, the eternal one. And then there were three words that he uses in greeting there to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. And and grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. Uh, Mercy is God withholding what I really do deserve. And peace is knowing whatever happens is God's will. And these days, I think we need peace uh, more than anything else because there's so much going on in this world. And our world isn't that much different than the world Timothy was living in when there was so much against him as a pastor, so much against the church, so much against Christianity. Persecution was on the rise. And peace was that wonderful commodity that God gives us to be able to live with with the confidence that whatever happens is God's will. Uh, He then, in verses 3 through 5, expresses a word of appreciation to Timothy, and he Paul was grateful for three areas in Timothy's life. He was grateful for his fellowship, he was grateful for his faith, and he was grateful for his family, for his uh, mother and grandmother who, who nurtured him and taught him the truths of Christianity from an early age. And, and Paul loved that about Timothy. And so, as we go on, and I don't know how many times I'll get a chance to speak to you, but we will, I will include the outline as far as we've gone all the way through. And then, like when we get done with chapter one, you'll have the whole outline on a piece of paper. So you can skip all the times I speak if you want and still get it. And, um, but then Paul moves from a word of appreciation to, in verses six through 18, uh, to, he gives Timothy five exhortations. Um, and I mentioned last time that I think it's so important that words of appreciation come before words of encouragement or words of exhortation to someone. I'm usually quick to spot what someone needs to do to get better. I don't know if you're that way. But 
for me to just blurt that out without recognizing what good things are already going on in someone's life would probably not be very beneficial. And, and uh, I even noticed that when we were raising our six kids. I was pretty, it was pretty easy for me as a dad to point out what I thought they should do to make things better. But it always worked out a lot better if I told them what I appreciated about them first. It got to probably be where they realized that if dad tells me what he appreciates, there's something else coming. So I used to really work hard at just telling them what I appreciated about them and then turn around and walking off. And bring them up a little short sometimes, I think. But I would encourage you and any, any of you who are in the child-rearing ages that if you can spend some time just appreciating your children for who they are, for how God's made them, for what their strengths are, and even your grandchildren, tell them that a hundred million times more. Well, I mean, that's a hyperbole, but a whole lot more than you give them instruction or exhortation to do things in a certain way. So if we want to be an encourager of people, we must first learn how to appreciate them, I think. Uh, and exhortation without appreciation can seem harsh. It can seem very harsh. And uh, So I, I think that exhortation needs to be balanced well with appreciation. Timothy was a great young leader. Boy, he was, he was a neat young guy when you, as you get to study him in Scripture. And, and he was a man that was just like Paul in many ways. But even the best among us need exhorting from time to time. If we've gotten to the point where we don't think we need any more exhorting or exhortation, we've probably already reached the point of being useless. And, and Paul, Paul knew Timothy would receive this well. The days that Timothy was living in, like I mentioned, are a lot like today. Um, there was a threat of persecution was rising. The church was kind of faltering in its stand publicly. Uh, and the tendency for a guy like Timothy, who was a little bit timid, was to just kind of hunker down and play it safe. Uh, that's, that's my default mode, too. I know how that feels. I think I'll just keep a low profile and play it safe. And, and in these days, doesn't don't you kind of feel like that? You feel like, maybe I ought to just get into the shadows a little bit and play it safe. Well, that's not exactly... I, I think Paul saw Timothy's tendency to do that. And so he gave these five exhortations to him. We're probably only going to get to two of them tonight. but And he, he told Timothy, rather than hunker down, here's what you should do when things are the way they are, even in the way we're, the country we're living in right now. The situations we find ourselves in are strange. They're uh, trying, a little bit scary sometimes. And so maybe we could take Paul's words to Timothy as words to us in these days of COVID and government overreach and all these things. And maybe they'll show us how to handle it. So the first exhortation, let's look, if you've got your Bibles or your phones or something, if you would look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, and the first exhortation is in verse 6. It says, for this reason, 
I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't allow your ministry to become cold. Stir up the gift of God. My translation says, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. It's, it's the idea of pull, pulling a smoldering coal out a little bit so that the air can get to it and rekindle the fire in that thing. And uh, if, you, if we were to literally translate that verse, it would say, Timothy, fan that gift to flames into you until it's white hot. White hot. And, and God has given all of us gifts. God sovereignly bestows these gifts on us. And uh, he's given to everyone in this room, everyone in this church, everyone who knows the, the Lord Jesus as their Savior, he's given them a gift. And he's given them the kind of gift that was designed to make this body or this church stronger. And if we hide our gift away, it's, it, the church isn't as strong as it needs to be. But if we bring it out into the open and we fan it into flame until it's white hot, then God, His purposes for us as a church and purposes for us as individuals is just, it begins to show up brightly in amazing ways. Every Christian at the moment of salvation is given a gift, a spiritual gift. It's, that gift's brought on board when the Holy Spirit comes to seal us for the day of redemption. And it says, Peter, the Apostle Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 4.10. He says, and as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. At salvation, each of us receives a, a grace gift, if you will, from God. It's just, it's like a, it's like a spiritual Christmas present. And, and He brings it to us, so it equips us to serve Him in some certain ways. He formed us in our mother's womb. He knew that Jesus died for us before the foundation of the world. And I think He knew what gifts He was going to give to you when you came to know His Son. And He likes for us to use those gifts. I, it's interesting to give gifts to children. You all have been in that Christmas gift hunting mode, I'm sure. And we want to find a gift that really excites our kids. And, and the most fun of giving gifts to our children and grandchildren is seeing the joy on their face and the genuine excitement they have because of that. Well, I think that's how God is. Oh, God just made me a servant. You know? And, and uh, it's not showing any appreciation to Him, but we, we understand that He gave us the gift that He wanted us to have. And we joyfully use it. It brings joy to His heart. I think I was about 15 years old, old enough to, you know, that I wasn't ready for any kid stuff anymore. And my brother was 10, and we had a, a, an older stepsister 
And I remember a gift that she bought for us. She she bought it for our bicycles. And my, my, my brother might have still been riding bicycles, but I wasn't. I was riding motorcycles and driving things. And, and this was a, a battery-operated motor that you used to put on your bike, and you turned on it made your bike sound like a motorbike. And I remember when I opened the box and saw what it was, the chagrin I felt, almost embarrassment. But Karen was so excited about giving this gift to us that my brother Ron and I acted really excited. And we looked across the room at each other and we knew what this meant to Karen. Well, do you know what your gift that God gave to you means to him? Way more than a Varum motor for your bicycle. And, and God wants us to be excited about the gift he's given us. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, through 11, it says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Verse 7, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To other, another, miraculous powers in verse 10. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. And all of these, in verse 11, it says, are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as He determines. So we might say, well, I want to be the, have the gift of healing. That'd be a cool one. He said, but no, but, you know, you've got the gift of serving. But God has given them all in, in, in a group this size, God has given a lot of gifts that would make a full orb ministry function quite well. Because He's given them to us as He deems best. And so each one of us has a gift. But sometimes out of discouragement or frustration, sometimes we've even been hurt, our gifts, uh, it, we allow our spiritual gifts to just slowly decline and die down until they're just this warm, glowing ember someplace in the fire. And what we need to do at those times, especially when we think it's easier to just hide them away and not use them so we don't get hurt or discouraged anymore, we need to take them out and expose them to the air and let them begin to flame and fire and burn hot again. We use it fervently so our ministry does not become cold. After a long day of burning in the, in the yard debris and everything else in the fall, one of my favorite things, I wake up in the morning after I've been burning that day before, and I, I hurry and get dressed, and I run out to the burn pile. Do you ever do this? And you stir up the inside of the burn pile. 
in the middle of your digging for those coals because you know there's stuff around the edges that never got burnt. And so you want to rekindle that fire. You bring the embers out and you, you blow on them. And if you're like me, I cheat and use a leaf blower. And, and you blow on them and get them just going again. And then you rake things up over them. And that, those little coals that seem insignificant and not even visible to the naked eye become useful again. So maybe if you're here tonight and you've withdrawn and you've kind of played it safe, maybe it's time to bring your spiritual gift out in the open again and use it. Let God fan the flame and see what God does. Many of you know your spiritual gifts, but you're not using them regularly. And it's become cold. God wants it to burn white hot. Just like Paul said to Timothy, fan it into flame, Timothy. Stir up the gift of God that's in you and use it. Uh, What are some things that cause your ministry to grow cold? Number one, I'm just going to list a few things. There's probably 50 of them, but one of them is unconfessed sin. Both public, private sin, different things. Lust, pride, anger, gossip, all kinds of things. And we try to live with that. And that hinders our gifts from shining brightly. A second one could be unresolved bitterness. Unresolved bitterness. Maybe you haven't forgiven someone for who has offended you for something they did to you. Um, maybe you've taken up an offense for so, how someone treated someone you know. Maybe there's some unexplainable events in our past that have scarred our lives and hurt us. And, and we've just allowed that to cause our ministry to grow cold. Uh, maybe it's just a failure to use our gifts as regularly as we should. It might just be Uh, The sense that if we'd use them more, we would find them flourishing more. I'm kind of the sort of guy who, if I do something in the background, uh, it's okay. I don't really like people to know I do certain things. But then I feel kind of slighted if nobody knows I'm doing them. And the only person that we need to know, our audience of significance, is God Almighty. And if He knows it, then our gifts can burn and flourish. Uh, another problem uh, that can cause our ministry to grow cold is fear of man. Fear of man. In verse 7, Paul addresses that. He says, God doesn't, the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid. He, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear, fear doesn't come from God. It comes from the world and the flesh and the devil. Things because he knows fear will snuff out our gifts. A fifth thing could be the disintegration of a, the culture around us. We're seeing that in dramatic forms. Probably like none of us ever imagined we would in these days. And I think I've seen a lot of people withdraw I don't think, I have seen a lot of people withdraw their gifts. 
from using their gifts. A lot of people have withdrawn from even attending church. It's just a, a, a crazy thing, but this they see this, and we tell ourselves when we see everything just disintegrating around us, we, we say, what's the use? I mean, this whole thing's beyond rescue. But is it? Nothing's beyond rescue with the Lord Almighty. Paul encourages Timothy to kindle the gift into a living flame. He shouldn't become discouraged by the general failure around him. And it's very easy in our day to lose hope as we see compromise and sin abounding. It's easy to withdraw as we see the general tenor of the church weaken in its stance towards sin. It's We should become motivated and concerned to use our spiritual gifts more and more and more and more and more as we see things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Because what happens is when we use our spiritual gifts in the dark place, that little ember looks pretty bright. And then we get a bunch of embers together and we form a pile of coals. And anything that gets close to ignites from its heat. And things begin to spread. God's looking for people who are willing to shine in a dark place. God's encouraging those who have withdrawn their giftedness from the forefront to get involved again. God's asking those who who think that their gifting doesn't count for much to stand up and see what God can do when you put your gift out in the open air. The most important question of the day when we look at a passage of Scripture like this is when we, uh, when we climb into bed tonight, we want to be able to answer the question, are you using His grace gifts? Or have you received them and then found it safer to just kind of hide them away? God's not asking you to come up with a gift this evening. You already have one. He just wants you to use it. And yeah, I don't know many of you I'm, I'm kind of a stranger here. And, and, but, so I don't really know what your motivational gifts are or how God has gifted you, but I do know He has, and He wants to use you more than you would ever imagine. So That's the first exhortation. Don't allow your, your ministry to become cold, to grow cold. And the second one is in verse 7 and 8, and he says, Timothy, don't allow your master to become concealed. In verse 7, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed that your mentor, namely Paul, is in prison and soon to be executed. Don't be ashamed of the Lord, and don't be ashamed of me as the prisoner for the Lord. Don't allow your master to become concealed. Paul really knew that fear, fear really has a grip on people. I like to talk to people a lot. I like to be able to bring the name of the Lord up in strange places and at all times. 
And the times that I don't do it, the only reason that I can think of that I didn't do it was fear. You ever have God just talking to you? I mean, God, I don't hear an audible voice. Maybe people around me do, but but I just feel this impression in my spirit. You need to talk to this person. You need to talk to this person. And so I try. When I have that prompting, I try. One day I was in line at Safeway. And I I stir up a lot of conversations in line when I'm waiting in stores. I figure, captive audience, we're all waiting for the same thing. And I just felt this feeling. God's saying, you need to turn around and talk to the person behind you. And so I turn around and look at the person behind me. I hadn't seen him. And it's this great big burly biker dude with tattoos all over and big beard and all leathers and, you know, arms like unbelievable, you know, in the in, with the sleeveless vest. And my first thought was, surely you're kidding, Lord. He said, no, you need to talk to this guy. So I, I come up with something really original, like, you know, you shouldn't have gotten lying behind me. And he looks at me like, what do you mean? I said, well, because I'm always in the slowest line. And you could just see him relax. And we started talking and found out he was a believer. He just needed encouragement. And I'm shaking in my boots. Another time I went to... Um, I was street witnessing in Calgary, Alberta. And we had we were given an assignment of three different streets. And on these streets, uh, one, one street was kind of just the most normal street. One street over was all the gay bars and everything else. And the street next to that one down there was the prostitutes and the bikers. I got assigned the prostitutes and the biker street. So me and my partner that were we were working with, went up to this one group of bikers standing on the street and all these city buses are roaring by and I, I was just trying to figure out, how do I communicate with these guys? And so I said, hey, could I ask you guys a question? They, they kind of look at you like, who are you? And one guy says, sure. I said, what if I were to grab you by the collar and threw you under that bus and that bus ran over you and crushed the life out of you? And they all huffed up. I thought that was a stupid thing to say. And, and they, but they said, uh, I said, no, I, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, you could trip and fall under that bus. I said, I don't have to throw you under that. And one guy says, well, we'll throw you under there. And I'm thinking, this is not going well. But I said, no, no, that's not my point. My point is that we're all terminal. We all could die someday. And it's so important to know that if we do die, what's going to happen to us after we die? And you know, those guys stood there and engaged us and talked with us, and I got to share the gospel with them. Shouldn't be afraid. If God's stirring you, don't be afraid. The next week, we were downtown, and I was on the normal window shopping street, and I was with a, another gal, and we, we broke up in teams of guys and gals, so you, the gals could and Gauge the gals and the guys, the girl, the guys, the guys, and we could be encouraging one another. Well, there's this little lady, much, my mom was a real small, petite lady, and she was walking down there, had a dress nice, had her purse over her shoulder, 
And I broke the rule. I talked to her first rather than the female partner. And so I asked her if I could talk to her about spiritual things. She took her purse off and was flinging it at me and cussing at me and swearing at me and way worse than the bikers. So we can't, we can't go and using our gifts when we think it would be a good time to use them. We need to get them out in the air and use them so God can use them however He would like to use them in whoever's life He would like to use those gifts. Well, Paul knew that we often allow the Lord to be concealed in our lives and His name is often absent from our lips because of fear. But the first thing we notice that I want to tell you is that fear is not from God. In verse 7, it says, He's not given us a spirit of fear. In Romans 8.15, in the New King James Version, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In the New Living Translation on that verse, it says, So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children, adopted into His family, calling Him Father, dear Father. I, I think fear cools our ministry more than anything we could ever imagine. It'll limit our potential. It'll conceal the Master that we love so much. And as Christians, we need to recognize the fact that that fear is an invitation to defeat. Fear is an invitation to defeat. In Job 3.25, Job says, For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Being fearful is not what Jesus taught. He taught the opposite to his disciples. He, he wanted them to know that fear was not to rule the day. As a matter of fact, you can rest assured that whenever fear controls your life, the enemy of your souls is not far away. Whenever fear controls your life, the enemy of your souls is not far away. It's not God who gives fear. And if it's not God, who is it? It's the enemy of our souls. He causes us to be afraid. He causes us... Our flesh can think of enough reasons to be afraid. And when the enemy's kind of whispering things in your ear, that really manifests itself and multiplies that fear factor. In John 14, 27, it says, I'm leaving you with a gift. In the New Living Translation, I'm leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. It's been determined that in every area of leadership, courage, not fear, but courage, is the kernel of success. It's been documented that after every war, there's an explosion of entrepreneurship that takes place. And do you know why that is? It's because during war, many people discover a new level of courage that they never knew they had. And they begin to live their lives out like that. One man even started writing books on leadership after 
his combat experiences, and he he, he wrote on uh, big big leadership, entrepreneurial leadership. And uh, I, I want to tell you his story a little bit. His name's Wilson Harrell. He was a combat fighter in. Uh, fighter pilot in, in World War II. And I love World War II history, so you have to put up with me a little bit. But he flew a P-38. He and his team members were responsible for flying close support for General Patton uh, on his march through France. And I'm going to tell you the rest of the story in his words because he tells it better than I can. But he says, Our mission was to bomb and strafe enemy positions ahead of Patton's troops. One day, my flight of four planes, four, remember that four, that's a key number, was ordered to take out a German airfield 100 miles behind their lines. We zoomed down, made our run, and survived the anti-aircraft fire. As we pulled up, I saw in the distance what looked like a big flock of buzzards. Then I realized those aren't buzzards, those are airplanes. Those are German airplanes. I got on the intercom and called to my leader, Jerry Gardner, in a voice two octaves above high C. I yelled, Jerry, there's a whole mess of bogeys at 10 o'clock low. And Jerry looked up, and after a moment of silence, he calmly said, let's go get them. Well, off we went. Four idiots chasing in what turned out to be 67 enemy fighters. The dreaded Herman Gehring yellow-nosed fighters Toward the end of the war, America had destroyed most of the Luftwaffe, so General Gehring brought together his best pilots into one invincible unit. They'd had a field day bombing our airfields and killing our troops. They'd never been challenged until now. As we got closer, we could see that they carried bombs and belly tanks, and they were off bombing some unsuspecting airfield, not eager to play with just the four of us. Then they turned into us, 67 of them head on almost in range. He says, my backside was chewing up the seat. Now there was one sacred rule in the Air Force, always keep formation. The only way to survive in air-to-air combat is to stay together and protect each other. And at that moment, our leader Jerry got on the horn and uttered some immortal words, every man for himself. We zoomed right into the middle of their formation I ended up on the tail of a German general leading the group with his three wingmen. Nobody behind me could shoot at me for fear of hitting the general, which was a no-no for any German pilot who didn't want to face a firing squad. I shot the three wingmen without even getting shot at. And then the general and I had one heck of a dogfight. He probably flew into my fire since the beginning I was squeezing, since from the beginning I was squeezing every trigger in the cockpit. He went down. On the next second, every plane that wasn't shooting at Jerry and my other two buddies opened up on me. My plane and I caught fire. I bailed out, pulled my ripcord, looked up. My chute was on fire. Luckily, I was so low that my chute only swung a couple times before I hit the ground, badly burned, and I was picked up by the French underground. Eleven days later, when I was near death, Patton sent in a squadron of tanks to get me out of there into a hospital. That day of the dogfight, he said, 47 yellow-nosed fighters were shot down. All four of us survived and earned presidential citations. Now, that's kind of a cool story. But 
What was it that allowed four guys the courage to face such insurmountable odds and think it was a great thing to do? It was the fact that they were fighting for something bigger than themselves. They were fighting for a cause more than just their own personal safety. And I think our greatest battle comes, in in spiritual battles, comes from fearing for our own personal safety. When God has already guaranteed our personal safety, what's the worst thing that can happen to you or me? We can die. And then what? Sounds like a win-win to me. And, and God wants us to face our, our ministry and to face the world we're living in with that same kind of courage and confidence and fighting a battle bigger than ourselves. If we're fighting a battle just for our own personal safety, of course we're going to hide out. But if we're fighting it for the kingdom of God and what God is going to do in the lives of people who hear the message of the gospel, wow, that's what it's about. And as Christians, I think we need to remember the words that Paul gave to Timothy and take them to heart and meditate on them. Fear doesn't come from God, even in the face of overwhelming odds. In your notes there, it says, Fear does not help us use our gifts or speak up for Jesus because fear cripples, fear controls, fear conceals. You see, and that's nothing that God wants. That's nothing that God orchestrates. He's, he wants us to be bold. He wants us to uh, step out there. You know, eventually fear will strangle the life out of any ministry or any spiritual gift if we live under fear long enough. But boldness is the opposite of fear. I'm not saying we shouldn't have fear. I mean, we're going to be fearful. But boldness trumps fear. Those guys who flew into all those airplanes, sure they were scared. But the boldness moved them on. And the encouragement of someone else saying, let's go get them. That's that's what we can do for one another. Let's go get them. Let's do this. We can do this. This is the kingdom of God we're talking about here. We're not talking about some earthly kingdom and some well-devised plans of some evil politician. We're talking about God Almighty, and He can get us through it. So we we should be bold, and any fear we may have because of the situation we're living in in these days ought to be, that fear should succumb to boldness based on the God of the Bible. Paul recognized Timothy's timid nature, and he reminded him, he reminded Timothy, he says, to not let his fear prevent him from boldly proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me or the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Boldness is the opposite of fear. It strengthens and it frees you instead of allowing fear to cripple you and can control you and to conceal your master. Fear cripples our gifts. It hides our testimony. Boldness allows God to change the odds. Boldness allows God to change the odds. And if we remember that you and God make a majority in any situation you're in, boldness should come to the top. And I, I, I just would like to close tonight with saying, you know, whatever it is, if you got a gift and you haven't been using it, 
bring it out in the open. Fan it into flame by using it. Don't, don't allow fear to conceal who you love and serve, the, the lover of your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was, that was Paul's words to Timothy, who's pastoring this church at Ephesus, because Timothy was the timid type who wanted to walk away. He wanted to hide away. Paul says, that's not the right thing, Timothy. We got this. We got this because God says he's got it. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we, we love you. You're, you're an awesome God. And, and you're our strength and our shield. You're our buckler. You're our defender. You're the, the one who stands before us and goes behind us. You have, a, uh, our, you have our front. You have our rear. You have all around us. You've given your angels charge over us. And we thank you for that. We ask you to help us all be bold in these days. That these days would not be restricted for us. But we would be free to run with the gospel wherever you would ask us to go. In Jesus' name, amen.